I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. In this crossover episode with the Coronavirus Crisis Update podcast, my colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison, and I talked to John Barry, the eminent historian and author of the award-winning The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, which is, of course, a study of the 1918 pandemic, the Spanish flu. John Barry joined us for our 122nd episode of Coronavirus Crisis Update, so it was an important one. And we talked about everything, what's happening with COVID in America now and how Americans are exhausted and what the government needs to do next to deal with just that exhaustion. John Barry is a professor at my alma mater, Tulane University, so that made this all the more special for me. Please listen as we get to the truth of the matter about the latest on COVID with historian John Barry. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined again by John Barry. John, thanks so much for making the time to be with us today. My pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. I think it's our 122nd episode. We're honored to have you back as a guest. I want to give a shout out to my alma mater, where I'm an adjunct professor, and and you're currently stationed, Tulane University. Thank you for all you've done for the university, intellectually, the School of Public Health there. I also want to give a shout out to our colleague at CSIS, Hamza Khan, who works with Steve and is a recent Tulane graduate who helped us prepare for this podcast. So thank you, John, for being here. You know, our university and and you have really, you know, added a lot to the knowledge that's emerging about COVID. I know you didn't want us to give you prepared questions, but we worked up a few themes here. Andrew and I did. The first thing I want to start out with is is more of a personal question about your own perspective and voice. I mean, you bring to this discussion around COVID a certain unique perspective as a, you're very avowedly an expert who's a non-scientist, but with sharp insights into the science as a historian. You authored the prize-winning and definitive study of the 1918 Spanish flu, the Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. You've been a long-standing and outspoken policy advocate and activist, and not afraid to challenge the prevailing orthodoxy. And you're really a regular author, an oracle of sorts of very piercing editorials throughout this pandemic. And as we know, not surprisingly, you're working on another book, this one on the pandemic, which, as you've said in earlier interviews, that you discovered earlier in your life that writing books is what makes you happiest. So let me just start with a very broad question, which is we're two years plus into this pandemic. Tell us about how you would describe the outlook and the perspective that you've brought to this over the course of this pandemic. What is it, you know, you bring just an unusual an unusual background and perspective. How, how do you see that? Well, first, let me say that writing books does make me happiest, but it also makes me craziest. <laughs> Don't at all. I, my Particularly goodness. Particularly this one. That's a that's an interesting question that you know I haven't really thought about, which is one reason why I ask you not to give me any questions in advance. Or is that bigger spontaneity is probably better, but on this one, maybe preparation would have been better. Everybody goes around, is familiar with Santayana's quote. 
Uh, not that many people are familiar with Hegel's comment, what we learn from history is we learn nothing from history. You know, clearly there are striking parallels with 1918. You know, I've just tried to bring that to bear and, and many of those parallels didn't appear in my book. You know, they were either too technical or beyond the scope to appear in a book that was, you know, although I'm you know, obviously extremely pleased that the scientific community is very much recognized the book, but it was not written for the scientific community, it was written for a lay audience. And, you know, I, I simply went, you know, for example, the most recent op-ed, which talked about the fourth wave in, in 1920, you know, I think that was, you know, a relevant warning. There were obviously variants in 1918, as there were in 1957, 1968, 2009, 1889, which may or may not have actually been a coronavirus pandemic. So I don't know that that answers your question. On where we are now, John. I mean, you talked about the danger of hubris. You've talked about, you know, and you just alluded to, in 1920 there was a fourth wave of the Spanish flu. You've warned against hubris and overconfidence and indifference and premature optimism. You have been a bit of a pessimist that society's walked away from the tools that will protect us, and you've argued over and over that the virus still rules, that still kills still has great uncertainty, hangs over what exactly the virus does next. Can you explain a bit more about why you felt the need to speak so forcefully and consistently along these lines? Well, I think you just articulated my answer. You know, the virus has demonstrated all those things. I guess I'm not quite as pessimistic as uh, Mike Osterholm, who's a good friend. I'm sure you've had Mike on. We just had Mike last week, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I guess he's sometimes referred to as Dr. Doom, but he's unfortunately been proved right. I, I remember in the spring of 2020 when he said we were in the second inning and he and I would talk about that. And again, I agreed with him anticipating that there are going to be variants we co-authored along with Mark Lipsitch and uh, another colleague of Mike's at SIDRAP, a piece that ran, I can't remember if it was April or July 2020, about what the expectations might be in terms of waves. And, you know, that proved to be pretty prescient. You know, it's just until we get Paxlovid or other antivirals that are effective and that Maybe the virus, particularly if given in combination, would not be able to escape. Until we get widely uh, distributed and at easy access to that in combination with the vaccination, the virus might still be able to rule. There's also a possibility, and I'm actually kind of optimistic about this, but just because I'm optimistic about it doesn't mean it's going to happen. The possibility that we are pretty much done with it that what happened in 1918, the, you know, the, that virus had the ability to bind the cells in the lung. That's what made it lethal. It lost that ability. 
I think it lost the ability because as the immune system got better and better at protecting the lung, it had no use for that ability. So evolutionary pressure selection pushed it toward the upper respiratory tract. And it ended up, as I said a second ago, losing the ability to bind to cells in the lung. You know, that might well happen uh, with SARS-CoV-2. Delta had produced this huge viral load in the upper respiratory tract. There's no real evidence that it produced a similar increased viral load in the lung. Omicron clearly has more difficulty infecting the lung, although it can, than prior iterations of the virus. And with the immunity provided by both natural infection and uh, obviously vaccination, protecting the lung, that will continue to push the virus in the direction of the upper respiratory tract. I think that's, but that doesn't mean, you know, it's a, it doesn't have to happen. We could get a variant that is even better at infecting the lung than any prior one. I mean, it's random. It would have to also be able to compete in the upper respiratory tract or outcompete Omicron or other iterations. But it might also still be even better at the producing replicas of itself in the lung. What you're saying and what Mike Osterholm is saying, others are very cautionary notes, right? They're, our public is has been in this for a very long time, longer than most previous pandemics. We know it won't end soon. This longevity has been tied directly to frustration, anger, impatience, and a certain hostility and antagonism now building up against, against the science and against continuing to adhere to the kind of controls that we're gonna need still to, to manage it seems to me that because of the simple duration of this, the amount of time and the accumulated, accumulated stress that societies are feeling, our society, but other societies, that we're really at a, a period of exhaustion and a certain period of a heightened danger of making really bad decisions. Would you agree with that? Yes. Again, I'm optimistic that the virus will continue trending toward mildness. I think that I think it will end up there, uh, but there may be intermediate steps that go in the other direction. You know, again, the, the last op-ed that I wrote just a, a week or so ago warned about that fourth wave in 1920 that in some cities was actually the deadliest wave, although as a general rule, it was not. You know, we are at, therefore, a potentially very dangerous time, again, dependent on the virus. John, the fourth wave that happened in 1920, it, it was a striking parallel to what's happening now. People were really done with the Spanish flu. Everybody, you know, we keep hearing everybody say they're done with COVID. Well, I always say you may be done with COVID, but it may not be done with you. And, you know, isn't it the same thing that we're looking at right now? Exactly. You know, I don't think, you know, in 1920, cities did not respond because people were, were tired of it. You know, I just sent in an op-ed today about this. It's probably, I don't know, every, fortunately, every op-ed I've written 
since COVID started has actually run in either of the Times or the Post. This one is the strangest op-ed I've ever written. Its title is what my high school football coach taught me about COVID. My high school football coach died 30 years ago. So, Wow. But he told used to tell us that, you know, late in the game, you're, you're tired. The other guy's tired. The, the person, the player who really focuses, who manages to focus at the end when everybody's tired is going to win the game. And he used to tell us a story. I mean, he was captain of an undefeated Boston College team uh, that was coached by Frank Lay the year before he went to Notre Dame and became famous. And they played in the Sugar Bowl against an undefeated Tennessee team. And the winner was going to claim the national championship. And he told, used to tell us a story about late in the game, it's tied 13-13, and this is at Tulane Stadium on Tulane's campus, I'm That's assuming. Correct. You know, he, he knocked down an All-American defensive uh, tackle for Tennessee. But the play was a reverse, which is a slow developing play. And the tackle got, had plenty of time to get to his feet and make the play. He threw the block too soon. In fact, the Tennessee All-American was tired, saw the play going away, and stayed on the ground until he saw the play coming back. But by that time, it was too late for him to get to his feet. He missed the tackle. Boston College wins the game 19-13 and did, in fact, claim the national championship, although there were about four teams that claimed that national championship that year. But nonetheless, they finished 11-0. And And the the point, of course, is of the – and again, it's the strangest op-ed I've ever written, so I don't know if it's going to run – but the point of that is, yeah, you're tired. It's the end. But it's a time to focus. Now, that does not mean that you live in a box. It does not mean you isolate yourself. I go out every morning for coffee and have breakfast. But we sit in, you know, you know outside. You know, I don't wear a mask outdoors. I never have. You know, I do go to restaurants, but I sit outside. I socialize with people whom I know take this thing seriously. I even do one high-risk activity, which Mike Ostrom keeps trying to get me not to do. I go to the gym. But I do most of the exercises at home that I can do at home. I only go to the gym for one squats, which I can't do at home. And I convinced the gym owner to open a previously painted shut window, which is right next to the squat rack. And I wear a mask. So the, the point is, there are plenty of things you can do. And in the op-ed, which again may or may not run, I talk about Japan's three C's, you know, avoid crowds, close spaces, close contact. And... Uh, you know, one of the biggest public policy questions coming out of this pandemic is whether those three C's, along with, you know, a different method of contact tracing and, of course, vaccination, whether those three C's account for Japan's experience, which is fewer than 20,000 deaths right now. And 
you know, that translates to about 60, not quite 60,000 deaths in the United States over a two year period, which is an average influenza year, almost a mild influenza year, not quite, but, you know, certainly mild to moderate influenza year. If in fact, that's why, I mean, there are other reasons, including, the, the, you know, fewer nursing homes, you know, the elderly tend to live with it and so forth and so on that, that are factored into that. And maybe they just got lucky with a strange version of the virus. You know, it's not clear, but that's a huge public policy question. Anyway, you apply the, the, the three C's plus, of course, vaccination and masking uh, to what you're doing today. That's the way I'm proceeding. And, uh, you know, society as a whole has largely given up, but the individual can still act. And that's the action that I think the individual can still take. To your football analogy, all anybody has to do is look at the Super Bowl last night and look at what Cooper Cup and Matt Stafford did, you know, at the end to really dig deep. They they were tired, but they took it over the finish line. I want to talk about the polarized situation here, John, and um, the fact that the far the far right really doesn't like you very much they i think those who are propagating falsehoods conspiracy theories and the like and they they have a power and a presence in them because of social media and and the politicization polarization of almost every facet of this pandemic response and we've seen this morph into a freedom movement right it's it's broadened it's built bigger alliances it's got celebrity firepower behind it. The Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan bringing Robert Malone onto his show. And you yourself have talked about how you've got great media presence, but that Fox doesn't like you and doesn't invite you very often, or they, they don't follow through and the like. How do you change your strategy of communications and your, your messaging to try and deal with this this new reality that we face, this more openly hostile and aggressive sort of environment against people like yourself who are not not partisan at all. Well, you're asking the wrong person. You know, I've never tweeted in my life. I've never posted on Facebook on about COVID, you know, not even, you know, spent my op-eds around. So, you know, I'm of an age where I can get by in terms of as a writer using the old model. I couldn't do that if I were younger or less established right now. So I don't really have an answer to that question. You don't feel the pressure from? I feel pressure. You know, I've almost been insulted because I've gotten nasty emails, but nobody's by emails threatened my life. So I kind of feel left out when I talk again to, you know, friends who are, you know, out there maybe more than I am. As, as you know, Steve, and I think Andrew also knows, beginning in March 2020, I was involved in an effort to do exactly what you're talking about, reach people who are not, don't read the New York Times, or if they do read it, they disbelieve their, their default position is to doubt anything in the Times. This was an effort originally organized by uh, James Carville but it included a lot of conservatives, you know, Carl Rose, chief of staff, for example. And their original approach was to go 
almost census tract by census tract the way a political campaign approaches things and try to find who the appropriate influencer is in that particular area and get that local influencer, that local trusted messenger to carry the message about COVID. We got some very sophisticated people involved in that, very bipartisan, but we never succeeded in accomplishing what we tried to do. We, we ended up with the typical stuff. We had celebrities, for example, Chris Rock. We arranged for both Matthew McConaughey and Tiffany Haddish to uh, interview Fauci. Both of those things, I think, got big hits. And I think of all the interviews Tony ever did, I believe the one with Tiffany Haddish was probably the one he enjoyed the most. Uh, but in terms of reaching and, you know, hopefully those had some impact, but they were the usual celebrity stuff. And, you know, I tried in Louisiana to get the swamp people involved, you know, from that reality TV show. We were unsuccessful in doing that. And other people tried to get other locals involved elsewhere in the country. And without, uh, you know, there were some successes, but uh, not what we originally hoped for. John, a new phase of the confrontation. Let's talk about that for a second. Do you agree that mandates have become a powerful foil for opposition forces? Okay. You know, just looking at the remarkable disruptive impact that trucker uh, convoys have had in Canada, have we entered a period of escalating confrontation with a rising threat of violence, in your view? Yeah, I think the threat's there, you know, thanks to you know, some ridiculous, crazy leadership in the preceding administration. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, it's it's that threat exists. You know, liberate Michigan, people talking about kidnapping the governor of Michigan. Yeah, that's scary. You know, the fact that uh, Fauci needs protection, yeah, sure, that's scary. Do you think this violence and confrontation in an organized and unorganized way is going to continue and, and ramp up as the longer that we're mired in this pandemic? Well, I think the the day of mandates is pretty much over. You know, uh, mm -hmm. Politically, that's worn thin. I don't think there are too many governors or, or, or mayors who are going to stick with that. Interestingly, in New Orleans, and it seems to have a lot of support in New Orleans, um, it's probably one of the most advanced cities in the country in terms of, you know, you cannot go into a bar or restaurant without proving vaccination. And most places seem to enforce that. You have to wear a mask indoors. Most places seem to enforce that. You know, I think here it's got support because they recognize that Mardi Gras it started already. The parades rolled actually began eight days ago last weekend, and there were more parades this past weekend, and there'll be more parades next weekend, and then you know, versus Mardi Gras. Yeah, it's building. So the, they're willing to sacrifice in terms of protecting Mardi Gras. I think there's a recognition in the city that. Mardi Gras two years ago was a super spreader event. 
Also, the main African-American crew, Zulu, lost a lot of members to COVID. So Louisiana is the only state in the country where I think this is still true. I know it was true. I haven't seen latest data where the uh, vaccination rate among blacks was higher than among whites. And I think that was largely due to the efforts and the leadership in New Orleans and, and the fact that, you know, Zulu lost a lot of members to COVID. Well, having just spent the weekend in New Orleans last weekend, I, I can confirm for you that it seems like everybody is vaccinated and everywhere you go, they're checking your cards and they're, che- and they're not checking them in a pro forma way. They're, they're really looking at your cards and they're, they're asking you, some places are asking you for IDs with your cards to prove that your card is your mm-hmm. card. And I saw masking. I saw people being very serious about it. I saw people wanting to preserve their health and the health of their community. And I haven't seen that in, in, in a lot of other places. I think if you'd gone to Lake Charles, you would not have seen that. That's right. Yeah, you know, Lake Charles at one, well, New Orleans at one point led the world in uh, per capita, you know, in case growth and so forth. So did Lake Charles. Uh, in fact, the mayor of Lake Charles asked me to do a podcast, uh, you know, two years ago to try to communicate uh, with his citizens. Obviously, I didn't have a lot of impact. Let's talk a little bit about sports. We had the Super Bowl last night. We're in the final stages of Beijing Olympics, which are being conducted in this amazing bubble. We've got a lot of interplay between these global sporting events and the global pandemic. And we've also had all these high-profile sports celebrities that have taken positions and often of defiance. I mean... Djokovic is experiencing the Australian Open, Aaron Rodgers being openly defiant, Kyrie Irving being controversial in the NBA. These athletes are playing a significant role in stoking a kind of populist reaction, again, on the kind of freedom agenda or personal liberty and the like. Say a little bit about that. You've dedicated a lot of your life to, to writing about sports, your passion for sports, your writing about it, particularly on football. What crosses your mind as you're watching this interaction? Well, one correction. I very rarely write about sports. As a former coach, I hated sports writers. I never wanted to be defined as a sports writer. So, And, John, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that you coached at my son's high school, Sidwell Friends in Washington. Is that right? Well, that's true. Yeah, I did that for one year after my first book came out. Yeah. But prior to that, you should have mentioned that I coached the best Tulane football team since 1948. And indeed, in April, I'm, along with every other person associated with that team, I'm going to be inducted into the Tulane Athletic Hall of Fame. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. What, what, t- tell me what year that was. That was uh, 1973. So now everybody knows how old I am. Uh, <laughs> that might have been the last time we were good at Tulane, at football at Tulane also. Yeah, we beat a number five ranked LSU team, 14 nothing. We were five and one against ACC teams and two and one against SEC teams. Steve, you know, there are a few isolated athletes and those are the ones who've gotten a lot of attention. I, uh, the reality is like 98% of the NFL is vaccinated. Aaron Rodgers lied. 
you know, he's asked, are you vaccinated? He says, uh, yeah, I'm immunized. You know, later he says, well, I never lied. I said I was immunized. Well, no, you said, yeah, <laughs> that's a lie. He's a great football player, but a total jackass. And then blaming cancel culture and nonsense like that. But, you know, any celebrity that stands out, it's confusing to the public. It's unfortunate, but there's obviously nothing that can be done about it. Let me ask you this, John. What is the number one thing the Biden administration should be doing right now? Well, clearing up the message for one thing. You know, I think on a substantive basis, they've done most things right. Obviously, they put too much store in vaccination as a solution. I don't think they anticipated the resistance that they would get to vaccination, nor did I. I thought when Delta came, that Delta would solve the problem and get the bulk of the population vaccinated. But obviously, I was mistaken. You know, there is a significant hardcore. Uh, at this point, I would offhand guess that that hardcore has been, I mean, we're pretty close to, you know, 90, 95% of the population immunized by either natural infection or vaccination. I mean, we're going to get there soon because Omicron is going to find you uh, if you're not vaccinated. And, you know, even if you are vaccinated, it may well find you, but certainly if you're not. So that ship has sailed. The, but the confusion and the messaging, the back and forth, I mean, that is a self-inflicted wound that has really confused the public and has hurt the credibility of the administration. So the question is, how do you get credibility back? It's extraordinarily difficult to rebuild. That website they put up for free tests, that worked incredibly well. And I got my free tests on Friday or Saturday. And assuming that the rest of the country gets similarly fast response, and I think they will, if they haven't already gotten, I think that'll help. But that's only a little step. You know, all you can do is everything right from now on. So it's not a single thing. You know, obviously, maybe, maybe the single thing would make sure that you don't have conflicting messages in the future. Now, John, what you're pointing to, this problem's been magnified with Omicron, right? We've entered this transition now, as you've described it, where we have a wall of immunity. Uh, the emergency phase seems to be perhaps being put behind us, assuming we don't have dangerous new variants. And people are talking about moving towards management of the threat as a more, in a more normal context. Uh, but there's a lot of people that are, that are taking that general shift and carrying it way too far in terms of declaring, well, we're done. We can throw away these, these controls and the like. It's a very murky transition we've entered into. And your point about communication gets to the question of, well, what should the rules of the road be for talking to the American people. We're here that Rochelle Walensky and folks at CDC are busy going back on vaccines, masking, schools, 
reworking guidance right now. So there is a reset, an effort at reset right now. What would you say should be the kind of rules of the road? The amount of virus in the community. Community transmission is number one. I think one of the big mistakes made early, although there are people who disagree with me on this, is that when they closed down the country in March 2020, they did the entire country at the same time, even when where there were there was essentially no virus. I think that led to a loss of credibility, a, a, a loss of belief in the seriousness of the outbreak in those places that were suffering economically without any virus, any cases in their community at all. You can't, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So that's history. But I think local transmission is key to the kind of steps individuals will take. Again, New Orleans is an outlier in willing to be aggressive in maintaining certain uh, public health measures. Obviously, blue states are already giving up on mask mandates. But that that's number one. I think, you know, that should be an important part of the messaging, more so than it has been so far. John, uh, you've been really gracious with your time today. We always ask our guests at the end, you know, what gives them cause for optimism? Is there something in particular that you're feeling particularly good about going forward in the pandemic? Yeah, I actually am quite optimistic. Uh, despite all I've said today about, you know, it's not over yet and maintain your concerns and wariness and alert status and so forth and discipline, I'm actually optimistic. I think the most likely course is that the virus will continue to move toward the upper respiratory tract. I think future variants are most likely or more likely to be milder rather than more serious. So I'm actually, and, and again, we're very close, I think, to having essentially the entire population immunized by infection or vaccination, uh, which is going to provide significant protection. Uh, and then Paxlovid and other drugs, which are still not widely available, but they'll be coming. So I'm actually quite optimistic, even in the short and medium term, not to mention the long term when you get more drugs out there. But my chief concern, which is another, you know, sort of the other edge side of that question is that people just take for granted that the optimistic scenario is going to be what happens. So, again, the course of the virus, I expect it to become milder that's number one and immunity is number two so i th i think there's a very good chance in the pretty near future this thing may very well be behind us but i don't know john this has been an incredible discussion today thank you for all your coaching of us on this matter uh we learn a lot from you every time we talk to you and i know i speak for steve when i say we're both very grateful Thanks for being so nice to me. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. And uh, good to see you guys again. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, 
China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 